Welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In this session, we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. In this paragraph, Paul returns to what he began at the beginning of chapter 3. If you recall from our last session, Paul began chapter 3 intending to really launch into a final prayer and uh, doxology, kind of a culmination of everything he's been writing about, what God has done in Christ and how he's formed his people as one new humanity. And he intended to launch into a prayer culminating that, a celebration of that. And yet he broke off after his initial phrase into a long digression about his ministry and how his ministry fits into God's purposes and how it's focused on uh, really proclaiming God's power and good work in Christ to the Gentiles and bringing them together as fellow heirs and a fellow participants in what God is doing. And so he broke off of his initial uh, start, his what was going to be his prayer, to this long digression. Well, here in 3.14 and following, Paul then picks up where he left off. And so if you notice in 3.14, Paul begins with, for this reason. Well, that's exactly how he began the whole chapter in verse 1, for this reason. And so now Paul's ready to get back to what he started, for this reason. And thus we should hear the, for this reason, not as just the immediate paragraph where Paul took this digression, but picking up the for this reason from 3.1, we should again see the reasons that Paul has in mind. is everything he has described in chapters 1 and chapters 2 about God pouring out his spiritual blessings on his people, about God saving people by their grace, about God uniting Jew and Gentile together in Christ as one new human family, now alive from the dead. And so it's for all of that God has done, for this reason, he says, I bow my knees before the Father. And then he's going to launch into his prayer. And the posture he describes himself with in this prayer is bowing. Notice that. For this reason, I bow my knees. Interestingly enough, probably the most common Jewish posture for praying in Paul's day was standing. Standing. And yet bowing wasn't unknown, certainly. You see it in the Psalms, you see it throughout scriptures, bowing. And bowing communicates a submission. Bowing communicates reverence, respect, awe before a superior. Bowing communicates like homage to a king. Uh, and so here Paul bows before God really as a demonstration of the earnestness of his praying, of his submission to God, of his honor on, respect for God. He bows before him in prayer. And notice he describes him as the Father. I bow my knees before the Father. Uh, and describing God as Father is quite common in Paul's writings and certainly common here in Ephesians. Um, God is the Father. He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Father of his people who has blessed them and done good for them. And so Paul bows before God the Father. And notice that in verse 15, then, he continues on in describing the Father as the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Let's talk that through. We lose some of the connection here. Um, in in English. So the word father in Greek is pater, pater, and the word family, it's, it's translated family in verse 15, is patria. Do you hear the connection? 
pater, I bow my knees before the pater, from whom every patria in heaven and on earth derives its name. Obvious play on words in Greek, and it's quite clear then what Paul is, is doing, at least in the sense playing off of the word father, from whom every family, and the, the word translated family, patria, is the idea of family, clan, people group, like your your tribe, your clan, your people group, right? That's who we're talking about. So he bows his knees before the father, the father from whom every patria, every clan, every people group in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, when we say patria, clan or family in on earth, that, that makes sense to us. We get that. What does it mean by in heaven? There's quite a bit of debate among scholars among that, but in the whole context of Ephesians, where there's so much about the rulers and the powers in the heavenly places, again, this is probably just not like being super specific, just a general way of referring to the spiritual powers, both good and bad, the spiritual powers that God is over, the spiritual powers, the spiritual families, the spiritual groups of beings that God has created. That's probably what we're talking about. So Paul bows his knees before the Father, from whom every group of beings, group of people in heaven and on earth derives its name, or literally is just is named. Like, Every family is named, and the idea is that God is the source and the namer of each of them. And to name something in the ancient world was to really have authority over and control over. Think of Adam naming the animals in the creation story in the Garden of Eden. That just shows his superiority over them, and that he's in charge of them. And he is over them, and he's supposed to be over them for good, right? Like, as God is good to his whole creation, mankind was supposed to be good to God's creation. So he's over them. Or think of magical practices in the ancient world. You see it even in the story about Ephesus in Acts 19, where you use some sort of powerful name that you think gives you power and control over some other power or over something to get what you want. That's the way magic works. You would have a a chant, an amulet, a name that you could use for control purpose, power purposes. So when it says that God is the Father from whom every group of people and every being group in heaven and on earth is named, it means he's over them. He's in charge of them. He's the one that brought them into existence. He's the one who named them designated them, and thus he's in charge of them. So Paul is bowing before the Father, who is the creator of everything, everybody, every living being, who is in charge of them all, even the ones that are in re revolt and rebellion and now are hostile to his good purposes. God is still sovereign over all of that. That's who God is praying to. Now from there, in verse 16 and following, we get the content of Paul's prayer. What exactly is he praying for? And it's a rather long, somewhat convoluted sentence from 16 through 19. And so you could kind of get lost in the grammar a little bit. So let me just kind of sort out what Paul's two main requests are, as I understand the flow of thought. And then the details we'll work through into each of those. So Paul's requests are two. The first is this, that God might grant you the, the strength to be dwelt in by Christ. That's the first one, that God might grant you the strength to be dwelt in by Christ. And then the second request, as I see it, is that uh, you might be strong enough 
to really comprehend the love of God, to grasp the love of God with the end result that you'd be filled up with the fullness of God. So two requests. God would grant you the strength for Christ to dwell in you and that you would you would be strong enough to comprehend the love of God. Those are the two main requests in this section. Now, with that, let's walk down through the details so we really hear how Paul prays. So, he bows his knees before the Father, and he prays that God the Father, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. So, that's that's the first real request that that God would grant you, that he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, and that this would happen according to the riches of his glory. So the request is that, that God would grant you to be strengthened. Um, specifically, he says that this would happen according to the riches of his glory. Don't miss, it's, it's a subordinate clause, obviously, in the grammar, uh, and yet Paul is really saying that God is so glorious that his glory is rich, rich in glory, rich in might, rich in majesty, rich in, right? Like he is rich in glory. Glory is a way of just capturing the, the sheer magnificence of God's personhood, the sheer magnificence of his being. And so Paul prays that this Father, this one who created everything, who's in charge of everything, who is magnificent, who is wealthy in his magnificence, that he would strengthen you with power. Those almost words are almost synonyms. They overlap, that you would be strengthened with power, that you would really be strong with the might of God, and that would happen through God's Spirit. That this would happen through the very Spirit of God who is made to dwell in you, in the inner man. What's the inner man? Well, that's just your inner being, your inner person. That the most, the most really gen general way to refer to the human being in a biblical theology is man has an outer being and an inner being. We have a body, a physical being, an outer being that is visible, tangible, right, sensible, seeable. It's the outer being. And we have an inner being, an inner person that is composed of the spirit, the mind, and all those more uh, um, less tangible parts of us. So that God would strengthen you in your inner being, in your inner person, deep in your spirit, your soul, your heart, your mind, deep within, um, so that he would strengthen you with power. And the result of that strengthening in verse 17 is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, when he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, it's probably the idea that, that the very living Christ and his character would, would come to take up residence within you in, like, in very clear, obvious ways, that you would know the living presence of Christ and that he would dwell among you, that his character would be fleshed out within you. So the idea is that Christ would make his home in your hearts through your trust, your confidence in him. And so this is the goal of the strengthening that Paul's praying for, is for, for Christ in you individually and in you corporately as his people, that, that he, would, he would dwell among you. He'd make his home there, that his character, his wisdom, his 
presence, his power would be known in and among you as his people. So Paul's praying for that, that they would be strengthened so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. And the second request then picks up right after that, midway through verse 17. And remember, in essence, that request is that you would be strong enough to know the unknowable love of God. Uh, but Paul has kind of, again, a subordinate clause before that. So let's read. He says, and that you, so this is a further outgrowth of all of this, as Christ takes up his residence in you, that here is even more what God would do among you, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So that is really request number two that grows out of, it seems to me, request number one, is as a God, by the, his Spirit, uh, has Christ living within you, which, by the way, notice that, Father, Spirit, Christ, three in one, all working together in, in response to this prayer, all involved in carrying out what Paul is praying for God's people. So that, um, and the, the outgrowth of that here is that you would actually be strong enough to know this love of God. But notice what he says, that you, being rooted and grounded in love. So that you, being rooted and grounded in love, being rooted and grounded in love is sort of like the foundation. It is the basis for this, this prayer um, that Paul is really asking here. He wants them to know the love of Christ, but it's going to happen because they're already experiencing the very love of Christ. They're already rooted in it. They're already grounded in it. And so Paul starts this second request with the assumption that they're already experiencing God's love in the core of their being, in the core of their life, right? Like Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that uh, God by his Spirit has, that the Spirit himself has poured out the love of God in your hearts. This is, this is the Christian experience that is we come into God's family, we experience the very love of God, and that love becomes the bedrock foundation of our life. And so experiencing this love of God should lead us into deeper experiences of God's love, to know God's love, which is so deep and so great that we can't even fully ever comprehend it, fully ever plumb its depths or know what it's all about. But it begins with being rooted and grounded in love. Uh, this is just so critical for us. Um, just at a practical level, like human beings are made to run on love like a automobile is made to run on gasoline. And when love is deficient in our experience, in our life, it, it it ruins us. It stunts our growth and our development. And so when we come into the family of God now, we're entering into a family marked by love. We're entering into the experience of the love of a father that is gracious and good and caring and kind and deeply loving. And so now, once again, our inner being, our soul, our personhood is rooted in love. That's the idea. So that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend, may be strong enough, literally is the idea of be able, that you may be strong enough to comprehend 
with all the saints, notice that this is with all of God's people. That's the idea of saints here, right? We've talked about that already. That with all of the saints, um, meaning this isn't some secret esoteric knowledge that, you know, is only for kind of initiated elite few. No, this is for all of God's people so that you might be able to comprehend, grasp, seize, understand with all the saints what is, notice how he describes the love of God here, what is the the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. So think of how wide and how long and how high and how deep that you might know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. So that as you're strengthened in your inner being so that Christ can dwell in your hearts through faith, now you being rooted and grounded in love, you begin to have a deeper knowledge of, a deeper understanding of, a deeper appreciation and experience of the very love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Like, how could you ever completely grasp the love of Christ? And so Paul's praying that even though that love is so deep, so wide, so high, that we could never fully know everything there is to know about it, that we would know it more. We would know it more fully, more completely, more experientially in our life. And so he's praying that, that uh, you would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. With the ultimate and final result being that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now just to really clarify that phrase, we could read that phrase um, real quickly and think that we would be filled up with all the fullness of God, as if God were the content of the filling. And certainly, God's dwelling in our hearts, right? He's poured out his spirit who lives in us. That's just not quite the point here. The point isn't that you'd be filled up with God, but that you'd be filled up, notice, to all the fullness of God, meaning all the fullness that God has for his people, all the fullness of God's blessings, all the fullness of God's love and wisdom and grace and truth, that you would be filled up with all that God has for his people. So God here is the giver of the fullness, not the content of the fullness, if that makes sense. So that you would be filled up with everything that God has for his people, everything God created us as his people and created us individually as his child, son or daughter, everything that he intends for us, designed us for, that we'd be filled with all that. That's the ultimate goal of Paul's prayer, that we would come to the fullness of everything that God has for us. With that, Paul has described how he's praying for the Ephesians, this great, really climactic prayer at the end of sort of his theological reflections here in the letter. And so with that, beginning in verse 20 and into verse 21, Paul culminates this really heavy theological section of this letter with a doxology, a prayer of praise to God who is so incredible, so wonderful, so powerful, so great. And so we culminate this section of Ephesians with a doxology, which is beautiful and amazing. Paul has really, in these three chapters, described the wonder of who God is and the greatness of God's work in Christ and how comprehensive and vast and expansive that work is. And so it's only appropriate to praise God at the culmination of that. So here is the doxology in verse 20 and 21. He says, Now to him who is able to do uh, far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him, be the glory 
in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so notice what he says, like to him be the glory. That's ultimately what he wants to say. To him be the glory. God is described as the one who is able to do far more abundantly beyond anything we could ask or think. So God's greatness, his power, his energy, his capability, his capacity is goes beyond anything we could we could imagine, anything we could come out and ask. God's able to do any of that. Now, we don't always know what God will do, right? Because we don't totally have that. But God is so beyond our ability, so capable. When you look at everything he's done in Christ, it exceeds our expectations. It exceeds what we could have could have dreamed up on our own. God has done so much already. He's capable of so much more. So now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, and notice this next phrase, according to the power that works within us. Remember, when Paul... Uh, Paul's initial prayer in uh, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, 15 and following, that initial prayer, one of the things he asks is that we, we would know the surpassing greatness of his power for us. Then he goes on to talk about how that power is in keeping with the resurrection of Jesus, and then how that power raised us up when we were dead in transgressions and sins. And so God has been at work in us and among us as his people, according to the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, that overcame death and replaced it with life. Well, that very, very power then is at work within us. So God's able to do abundantly beyond all we could ask or imagine. We've seen that in the resurrection of Jesus. And so to him, he says, be the glory. To him be the honor, the reverence, the praise, the glory. Right? Like, let's put God's name up in lights. Let's, uh, let's you know, not drag God's name through the mud. Let's not keep it hidden. Let's, let's live and speak and act in such a way that God gets the glory, that all the arrows are pointing to him, and God is seen for the wonderful, majestic, incredible, powerful, loving, gracious person that he is. To, to him be the glory in the church, in the church, and in Christ Jesus. And so the church, the gathered people of God, the, 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 the people of God in whom he has poured out his grace and who are exhibit A of God's wisdom and grace to not just the watching world, but to the spiritual authorities and powers, as Paul's already said, right? So may his glory be in the church and in Christ Jesus, which is the one through whom the church is formed and through whom God has done this great work. So to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And here we are 2,000 years after Paul wrote these words, generations later, and may God still get the glory in his church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. And that's really Paul's culminating prayer here of the theological section in Ephesians, beginning in chapter 4. We're going to shift now towards, okay, let's live like it. Let's live like it. But here, Paul's just been describing these first three chapters, what God has done and how much he has achieved on our behalf in Christ. And so it makes sense that we would end this with really a prayer for, for God to like extend that work and do more of that work and then to praise God for everything he has done in Christ. Now, before we leave this section, let me just offer just a couple of reflections there's so much in this short little prayer that we could actually reflect on. Obviously, stuff about God and Jesus, the Spirit. There's just tons that we could reflect on. Let me just pull back, though, and, and just a, a couple 
more kind of big thematic reflections out of this section. One is, when we hear Paul pray like this, here's a man who, right, like devoted his whole life to Jesus, and you're, you're listening in on his prayers. And it gives you an insight into the depth of his spirituality and what he, as a church planter and pastor, what he longed for his churches all to experience, what he longed for the church in Ephesus and the churches in the surrounding region to experience, that they would would really deeply understand the love of God, that they would be filled up to all the fullness that God had for them, that they would, that Christ himself would really dwell in their hearts, that his character and his power and his wisdom would be manifest. And you're, you're hearing what Paul longed for in his churches. When he started churches, when he made disciples, this is what he wanted for them. This is what he would want for us. How does it compare with, with the way we pray, with the things we want for our family or the things we want for our church, or the, the kinds of criteria we would measure our church by. These are the things that really matter. That's what we hear here in Paul, that these are the things that really matter. For all the, the peripheral stuff, all the you know concrete, tangible, all the other stuff that has to happen in a family, or in a small group, in a Bible study, or in a church, this is the heart of what really matters. And so we get to hear that from Paul as he prays for them. And it really helps us understand, man, I want to learn to value these things. I want to learn to pray for these things. These are the things that really matter. So that's my first reflection. Just sit in it, soak in it, listen to what Paul prays, and let it begin to shape your passion, your desire for for what God wants to do in and through you and your family, your Bible study, your small group, your church, right? This is what really matters. The second reflection uh, I would offer is on that same theme, um, to him be the glory in the church. Like Paul knew all the struggles of the church. He had plenty of struggles with his own churches. He knew the shortcomings of the church. He, By the point he writes Ephesians, he had dealt with Uh, some of the chaos in Corinth. He had had conflict in Galatia. He understood the weaknesses of the church. And yet, at a grand sort of panoramic level, he could step back and he could say, in spite of all of the church's shortcomings, the church is still exhibit A of the glory of God. The church is still a key demonstration of the wisdom and majesty and goodness and grace and power of God. And so for all of the church's shortcomings, all of its feebleness, all of its faults and weaknesses, the church is still supposed to be and still is exhibit A of the very glory of God, both here on earth and, as Paul's already said in Ephesians, to the the authorities and powers in the heavenly places that, that somehow We, the people of God, brought together in Christ from all different backgrounds, learning to love each other and live together and having Christ dwell among us, somehow we bring God great glory. And so as we look at the church and all its brokenness, feebleness, and all the ways we need to improve, may we pray like Paul prayed and may we believe what Paul believed, that the church can be exhibit A of the very glory of God here in this world at this point in time. Let's pray that way, and then let's live that way 
for God's good name and for his glory. Hey friends, it's John. You know, when I receive word from other places in the world where somebody who doesn't have access to formal theological training and Bible instruction, and yet they're trying to preach it to others, and they're serving a small church, and I hear about how the, the listener's commentary has encouraged them and strengthened them and enabled them to preach the Bible better to their congregation, man, it thrills my heart, and that's what this is all about. And it's made possible, really, by the generosity of supporters just like you. And so I just want to invite you, would you consider supporting this project so that more and more people can learn the word in this way?